stance were plastered on subway stations in Brooklyn and buses rolling down Broadway. He was a sepia-toned success story on the cover of Men's Journal and the PGA Player of the Year. He put his adventure hat on for Chevrolet in America and Holden in Australia. He urged people to write with LeBeouf pens, use Cobra clubs, consider Maxfly balls, play eighteen holes at the medalist, buy Norman turf, sail Norman yachts, fly Qantas, wear a Rolex, and attack life in Greg Norman clothes. Two years earlier in a villa on the other side of America, the cornerstones of this success story, International Management Group and the man they once marketed, had collided. Then nobody was smiling. Norman, his chiseled face intent, was talking to his agent, Hughes Norton. Norman's elegantly beautiful wife, Laura, sat beside him. They were discussing the successful outcome of the biggest gamble of a career founded on risk. In 1990, Norman had invested $2 million of his own money in Cobra Golf, Inc., acquiring a 12% stake in the company. Even before the primary shares were offered in September 1993, it was clear that Norman's stake was worth almost $20 million. By January 1, 1996, it would be worth nearly $44 million. In the meantime, Norman had left IMG, and the small matter of a commission had arisen. Earlier, they had reached a stalemate. But now Norton believed he had a temporary solution in mind, a destination for the million dollars in question, a safe house, as it were, on the way to IMG. Greg, he said slowly, you're wrong not to pay IMG, but if you can't bring yourself to pay it to them, why don't you pay it to me? Chapter 1 The Milky Bar Kid The guys who want to be great players learn from the age of fifteen that if you're not willing to totally fall on your face with the whole world watching, and deal with it, and stay up, then you don't become a champion. Dr. Bob Rotella, Sports Psychologist, 1996 When Toyne Norman played her last round of golf, the Bougainvillea were in bloom, crowding the tees with their scarlet and purple blossoms, as she walked wistfully from the eighteenth her pregnant belly heavy and awkward. She had managed to keep playing for more than seven months, holing out weekly amid the ghost gums and sand greens of Mount Isa. But when the summer came with scorching metallic skies, she was forced to admit defeat. On February 9, 1955, she was admitted to the hospital with high blood pressure. Gregory John Norman was born the next day arriving in the world with fine milky hair and a piercing scream. He weighed eight pounds, eleven ounces. "'He was a terrible baby,' Toyne laughs. "'He cried all the time. He kept us awake for about twelve months. Finally we moved into a new house, and I said to the neighbors, "'I hope you aren't light sleepers, because I'm going to just leave him to cry.' Greg cried for two whole nights, and then he never cried again. Both Toyne and her husband Mervyn were of Nordic ancestry. Toyne's carpenter father, Seth, and her mother, Tyne Hovey, 
were Finns who migrated to Australia in the 30s, while Merv's heritage was Norwegian, Danish, German, and English. They met and fell in love on the tennis court. And when Greg was born, Merv was working as an electrician for Mount Isa Mines in northwest Queensland, a noisy jumble of slag heaps and shuddering pipelines. The largest city in the world in terms of surface area, Mount Isa sprawled over rich deposits of zinc, silver, lead, and copper. As the only place of consequence for 700 kilometers in any direction, reports the rough guy to Australia, the smokestacks, concrete paving, and sterile hills at Mount Isa assume oasis-like qualities on arrival, despite being undeniably ugly. Perhaps fortunately, the Normans moved away when Greg and his older sister Janice were still tiny, taking up residence in Townsville, an arid and muggy but altogether more convivial spot near the translucent waters of the Great Barrier Reef. Merv set up his own engineering practice, and Toyney played golf again and tried to cope with Greg and Janice. Both my children were little horrors, she says. Her son was barely six when he discovered the joys of Magnetic Island, a vividly beautiful granite triangle just off the coast. The Normans had a small holiday house among the palms there, and Greg and Janice spent every spare hour of their childhood skin-diving and spear-fishing among the coral reefs, roasting their catches over an open fire. "'That's all I did,' Norman says. "'If I wasn't playing football or cricket or rugby or Australian rules,' I definitely wasn't studying, that's for sure. School was the bane of his life. He remembers a certain fondness for engineering, geography, and physics, but his mind was always elsewhere. He despised French. He didn't like school, Toyney says. He'd rather have been outside. He didn't apply himself. His father tried to get him to, but he'd rather play sports, to the despair of his teachers. I ran into his headmaster years later, and he said, I often wondered what was going to happen to Greg. They always thought he could have tried harder. He was always occupied and physically active, Merv recalled. The bloke was never sitting down reading books. The simple thing is that his coordination was so good that any sport he touched he could have played it well, picked up a billiard cue, and he could play billiards well. Always had that good hand-eye coordination. As a young man, Merv had been a talented rugby footballer who received several offers to go south to Brisbane and play, but his priorities lay elsewhere. Stern and uncompromising, with wide, powerful shoulders, he labored toward a degree in electrical engineering and then threw himself into work at Mount Isa Mines. Norman describes him as dictatorial the kind of man who would bang his fist on the table and say, "'That's it, boys. No more talk. Let's do it now.'" A man to whom actions spoke far louder than words. "'To win anything,' Merv would inform his small son, "'the first thing you need to do is control yourself, then the environment around you. Do that, and you're on your way to improvement.'" At that age, the only thing Greg was interested in improving was his sporting skill. He proved an adept rugby league footballer at Townsville Grammar, 
and was chosen to represent Northern Queensland against Southeast Queensland in a match in which he scored the only try. A series of strains and minor injuries persuaded him that rugby wasn't for him, but by that time he had developed a passion for bareback riding, galloping along the beaches in a wild flurry of spray. He and his friend Peter Rockins kept horses in a paddock behind Greg's house, a location that would have been convenient had it not involved a three-mile hike to the gate. To facilitate matters, Greg cut a hole in the fence, and, after being caught red-handed by the furious park ranger, was banished forever from keeping horses there. Like a lot of young boys, Greg saw his father as dull and authoritarian. It came as a huge surprise to him to discover, years later, that Merv had been a bit of a prankster in his time, rigging up sticks of gelignite so they would explode when the lighting he had fitted in the new Mount Isa Golf Club was switched on in a solemn ceremony. Merv's engineering skills also enabled him to build a little Sabo yacht for his watermad children, who were members of the Townsville Sailing Club. Greg was already steeped in the machismo of Australian society, and he immediately appointed himself captain of the Peter Pan, shouting down his older sister. After they had sailed to victory in the B-grade club championship, Janice punished him by joining the crew of a boat whose owner allowed her to be skipper. It was always the same, Janice laughed. I'd beat him up, and he'd beat me up. Asked on the television program, This Is Your Life, if there had been much competition between them, she said, Absolutely. I used to have bruises up my arms. He was a rat bag. My sister and I were close, but like any brother and sister, you've always got to love-hate relationship.